So because this is the first time I'm giving a formal Dharma talk on this retreat, I wanted to take just a few minutes to introduce myself a little bit more fully. Because as you heard the other afternoon in the sharing circle, I don't have a home base, but I travel to various places, different countries to teach these days, mostly New Zealand, Australia, the US, occasionally also Canada, Britain, other countries in Europe. And within those different countries, I also teach within different communities, and each have their own cultures, their own ways of doing things. And in some contexts, the idea of introducing myself at all would be seen as inappropriate. So some of you know, uh, for example, in the Burmese monastic tradition, when the monks speak, they speak from behind a fan. And this is a way of a kind of a effacement of letting go of the personality so that we can focus more on the Dharma. On the other hand, in New Zealand, where I grew up in the native Maori culture, before anybody speaks in the meeting house, it's protocol to begin your speaking by naming your family lineage and the land that you feel affinity for in terms of your mountain and your river. And the purpose of this is to let people know where you're coming from, where you're coming from literally and metaphorically, and to help them to find connections with you. So even non-Maori people, they sometimes adopt this custom with the same intention of helping to strengthen connections, to strengthen commonality or community. And again, to let people know where they're coming from, to make it easier to hear, to listen. Then again, in some of the other places that I teach, people find it easier to listen if they know where I'm coming from in terms of my social location. So gender, race, social class, age, ability, religion, sexual orientation, and so on. So I thought to sort of combine these different protocols and just to say I was born in the UK to parents from the north of England. They were not wealthy. And I like to emphasize that because I've noticed in the US, sometimes people hear a British accent and they assume it's upper class. So just so you know, this is not an upper class British accent. <laughs> and there have been, there was a time in my life when I was actually very close to destitute and living on the street. There have also been times when I had a professional salary. And for the last five and a half years, I've been living from Dana donations. And you can probably tell by looking at me, white, straight, middle-aged woman, and so on. In terms of geography and connection to the land, I feel an affinity with Mount Manaya in northern New Zealand. And you could say my river, in quotation marks, is the Pacific Ocean. Mm. And what I like about that is that it actually connects many of the places that I teach. So it shares California, New Zealand, east coast of Australia. I could also think more metaphorically in terms of the Buddha is my mountain as a source of strength, of a source of inspiration. And in terms of my Dharma lineage, Gil is one of my Dharma parents, and Oren is a Dharma sibling because we were in the same teacher training program together. 
And then with each of you, there's a sense of Dharma connection through our shared interest in freeing ourselves from dukkha, from suffering. And that is really the focus of tonight's talk, suffering, the end of suffering. And hopefully that is where we will find the deepest connection together. So last night, Gil gave an overview of the Four Noble Truths, this core teaching that we're going to be exploring through this whole retreat. And just as a very quick reminder, this is how they're very commonly translated. The first noble truth, there is suffering. The second noble truth, there is a cause of suffering. The third noble truth, there is an end of suffering. And the fourth noble truth, there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. And just to acknowledge that perhaps for some of you, if this is new information on first hearing, you might well wonder, well, why are these noble truths? All that talk about suffering doesn't sound particularly noble or inspiring. In fact, it even sounds a bit depressing. We might start to wonder, what have I signed up for here? may even feel concerned that this is going to be some week-long exercise in masochism. At least that was my own initial reaction when I first heard about these core teachings. Because the way they seemed to me to be presented at that time, it sounded something like mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering, mumble, 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 suffering. What I didn't realize was that right there was an opportunity to see the mind's inherent negativity bias at work. So as you probably know, neuroscience has discovered that we tend to put a lot more weight on things that are unpleasant, painful, difficult, challenging, and to not so easily or clearly recognize pleasant, easeful, beneficial experiences. So when we hear this Four Noble Truths framed in terms of suffering, we need to keep remembering the purpose of them is to come to the end of suffering, to ease, to happiness, to peace, to the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind. So I'd like to go into these Four Noble Truths in a bit more detail, starting with the first one, there is suffering. And again, with translation, we might think, well, suffering, sure, there are aspects of my life that aren't going so well at the moment, but I wouldn't really say I'm suffering. So we might not immediately connect with what's being pointed to here, partly because of this problem of translation. So the Pali word that's being translated as suffering is dukkha, And like many Pali words, it has a huge range of meanings. So it's worth looking, I think, at how the Buddha initially defines dukkha in the context of the Four Noble Truths from the very first discourse that he gave after his full liberation, after he attained Nibbana. So here he says, the noble truth of suffering, dukkha, is this. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. 
Association with the unpleasant is suffering. Dissociation from the pleasant is suffering. Not to receive what one desires is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging, grasping, are suffering. So there's a lot in that one passage and we could easily spend a whole retreat exploring it. But for now, I just want to highlight that the Buddha starts with the biological basis of being human, the challenge of having a body, and the truth that every single one of us is subject to the dukkha of being born, of getting old, of getting sick or injured and dying. And of course, we know that on an intellectual level. But when it comes to knowing it in our bones or knowing it in our moment-to-moment experience, most of us have an instinctive recoil from that truth. And right there, we've moved from physical dukkha into psychological dukkha. So these are the next types of suffering that the Buddha identified. Having to be with what's unpleasant is suffering. Then there's a the suffering of dissociation from the pleasant. In other words, not being with what we like or want. And just in case that leaves anything out, the Buddha then includes not receiving what one desires, not getting what one wants. And then he goes on to say, in brief, the five aggregates of clinging are suffering. And again, there's a huge amount, even in just that last statement, so I'm going to come back to that later. But just to keep in mind, the grasping is suffering. This is the clinging or craving that Gil spoke about yesterday and it's pointing to all the ways that we commonly react to experience to try to hold on to fix it to make it permanent if it's pleasant and if it's unpleasant to resist or reject or avoid or deny it so i'd like to read you a summary of the first noble truth uh, offered by Bhikkhu Bodhi because it highlights the the range of dukkha that Buddha is pointing to here. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the Buddha starts with what is close at hand, with the suffering inherent in the physical process of life itself. Here, dukkha shows up in the events of birth, aging and death, in our susceptibility to sickness, accidents and injuries, even in hunger and thirst. It appears again in our inner reactions to disagreeable situations and events, in the sorrow, anger, frustration and fear aroused by painful separations or by unpleasant encounters or by the failure to get what we want. Even our pleasures, the Buddha says, are not immune from dukkha. They give us happiness while they last, but they don't last forever. Eventually they must pass away. And when they go, the loss leaves us feeling deprived. Our lives, for the most part, are strung out between the thirst for pleasure and the fear of pain. We pass our days running after the one and running away from the other, seldom enjoying the peace of contentment. Real satisfaction seems somehow always out of reach, just beyond the next horizon. Then... In the end, we have to die, to give up the identity we spent our whole life building, 
to leave behind everything and everyone we love. So it be, can be quite confronting to hear this truth of dukkha laid out so boldly. And you might just notice if there is any particular response, even right now. And to reconnect with that understanding that the purpose of connecting with this first noble truth is that it's the beginning of um, the path to finding genuine contentment, satisfaction and peace. But to get there, we have to, get, we have to go through this process of getting to know dukkha in all its various manifestations, starting with the more obvious, even gross ones of our bodily and psychological dukkha. These are the kinds of dukkha that the Buddha laid out in that first discourse. But elsewhere in the teachings, he also pointed to some more subtle forms of dukkha that sometimes we might not even recognize as being suffering at first. So here, dukkha is also known as uh, one of the three universal characteristics of experience. And these three are the truth, the fact that everything is impermanent, or anicca. Everything changes. Every single experience we have is unstable, impermanent. And this change might be happening at different rates for different objects or different experiences, but nevertheless, everything arises, comes into being, stays for a while, and then passes away. This is the universal characteristic of anicca, impermanence. And then because of this impermanence, because nothing lasts, it's unstable, it's unreliable, incapable of providing lasting satisfaction. So this is the second universal characteristic of dukkha. And in this context, it's usually translated as unsatisfactoriness or unreliability rather than suffering. So in this context, we can see that even pleasant experiences can be classified as dukkha because before long, they too will pass away and then we're left chasing after the next hit of pleasantness. And seeing this clearly is a key insight, a key form of seeing that frees. Because when we deeply understand that nothing is going to give us lasting, permanent satisfaction, then we're not so caught up in chasing after the next hit of pleasant experience. And we get to taste equanimity, the heart and mind that are free from wanting free from not wanting. Then the third universal characteristic is anatta, usually translated as not-self. And it's at this point that I sometimes wish that the Buddha's teachings were not quite so comprehensive, because every topic that I'm touching into tonight can easily open up to become a whole talk in its own right, or even three whole talks. And each topic is inextricably linked to all the others, so it's very easy to end up with a three or four hour Dharma talk that's overwhelming to write, let alone listen to. So I'm going to apologize in advance for, in some ways, just skimming the surface with some of these um, teachings. But I hope that it will at least give you a framework uh, 
or a template to begin to apply to your own experience here on the retreat. So coming back to anatta just briefly, just to say for now that it refers to the fact that there's no fixed, solid, permanent, unchanging me to whom all of this experience is happening. And I'll come back to that later in the talk and probably it'll be mentioned at other points during the retreat. So coming back to Dukkha, this Pali word Dukkha, as I've been saying, it includes a very broad range of different types of suffering from at one end of the scale, the most extreme anguish through to just fairly minor discomfort at the other. And some translators have made the point that the the word that Dukkha comes from refers to uh, the terminology for an axle hole those old wooden, solid wooden cart holes, cartwheels, they had a square hole in the middle and that hole was what was called dukkha because if it's not fitting perfectly, clunk, we get a very bumpy ride. So sometimes dukkha is translated as unsatisfactoriness to get this, include this basic sense of something being just not quite right. I think in English we can say out of kilter. And so in this sense, every single one of us can understand that we're subject to dukkha, even right now. So I often like to check, is anybody here in this moment a completely, utterly, 100% happy, at ease, content, comfortable? No, even on retreat, right, where we've got pretty good conditions, there's often just this background sense of something not quite right. If only I'd had another cup of tea before the talk, then I'd be happy. Or if I wasn't so sleepy, then I'd be happy. Or if only she'd stop going on and on and on about suffering, then I'd be happy. So there's always this faint sense of dissatisfaction somewhere in the background or somewhere in the foreground. And this is the dis-ease that the Buddha is pointing to with this first noble truth. So in some ways the Buddha was inviting us to be, become a kind of a connoisseur of dukkha, to really become familiar with it, to learn to recognize its characteristics, to study it in detail, not as an exercise in masochism, but so we can begin to understand how to free ourselves from it. And this is what makes the first noble truth noble, because when we deeply understand dukkha, it sets us free. So in my own practice, I've been playing with the understanding of dukkha as a gift. Because when we can learn to relate to it in the right way, it gives us a very powerful opportunity to deepen wisdom and compassion. And through that process, eventually the heart and the mind do become completely free of all the afflictive states. Which is not to say that this idea of dukkha as a gift might at first sound totally counterintuitive. Because if we look around the world or in our communities, in our families, in ourselves, we see that plenty of people are suffering. They're suffering terribly. It's not to make light of this. 
Because if suffering was all it took to be free, then all of us would be free. But what makes dukkha freeing is the way we relate to it, our attitude to it. So learning how to meet dukkha with the kind of welcome that Gil was offering, to meet it with kind curiosity, with openness, with interest, and the willingness to learn whatever it has to teach us. This is what transforms it into an, an ennobling truth. And for most of us, it takes some training to get there because we have these very habitual knee-jerk reactions to what we don't like. They propel us into escapism and anger and blame and despair and avoidance and denial and so on. And in everyday life, when our mindfulness is less stable, it's much easier to get caught in these different kinds of unconscious reactivity. But here on retreat, we have the advantage of learning how to still the body and the heart and the mind. And as that more stable awareness develops, we start to see the underlying energies that are feeding the dukkha and in turn reinforcing it, creating even more dukkha. And the Buddha identified three particular afflictive energies that keep this entire painful cycle going. These three are commonly translated as greed, hatred, and ignorance, sometimes compulsion, aversion, and delusion. And these three are what keep the whole cycle of samsara going. They keep us spinning out in misery of various forms. So some of you uh, might be familiar with the, uh, the Wheel of Life in uh, Tibetan imagery. You sometimes see paintings of this wheel and at the center of the wheel there's usually a trio of three animals chasing each other. There's a cock which represents greed or compulsion because it's endlessly peck, 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 pecking after different bits of grain. Then there's a snake that represents hatred or aversion because it gives a painful or even fatal bite. And then there's a pig, and the pig represents ignorance or delusion because it snuffles along with its snout in the mud and its ears kind of flop down over its eyes so it can't see where it's going. And each of these three animals has its tail in the wheel in the mouth of the others so that they're locked into this eternal spinning dance at the center of the wheel. And together they keep the whole thing spinning. And we might recognize on retreat, we might start to learn to recognize the sort of the signature qualities of these different energies. So the first of these, which is greed, greed or compulsion, is a very common strategy to try to get rid of dukkha. It's that habitual tendency to go after sense pleasures as a way of escaping the unpleasantness. And we can recognize this energy in the body and the mind whenever there's any kind of leaning forward or anticipating or sense of pulling towards something that's pleasant. It can also show up as a, a wanting to hold on, to fix, to prolong or to enhance the pleasantness. 
And in our ordinary lives, I think most of us automatically reach for these uh, different sense pleasures when things get tough. You know, perhaps we pour a glass of wine or eat a tub of ice cream or swallow a handful of painkillers or call a friend or take a long nap, go for a run, walk the dog or hug our, our partner or go shopping or binge watch TV or we all have our favorite <coughs> strategies. And none of these things in and of themselves are necessarily bad. But if we're unconsciously using them to avoid unpleasantness, then we're reinforcing a kind of dependence on them. Rather than learning how to meet our difficulties in ways that in the long run lead to more ease and freedom. So one of the benefits of being on retreat, though perhaps at this point it doesn't feel like a benefit, is that most of our habitual sense pleasures aren't available to us. So we have the opportunity instead to develop our inner resources, our capacity to meet discomfort instead of avoid it. And on retreat, because we are to some extent training in renunciation, in simplicity, we don't have access to a whole lot of sense pleasures. So we sometimes see this energy of greed coming up, particularly in the food that's served. Because when we've been working all day, working hard at being mindful, and perhaps at times encountering physical, mental, emotional challenges, eating pleasant food is one of the few consolations available to us. And I don't know about here yet, but at IMS in Massachusetts, where I've done a lot of retreats, they usually only serve dessert every third day or so. And on longer retreats, although I don't usually have much of a sweet tooth, I was amazed at times to see how much mental energy was getting caught in anticipating when the next dessert day was going to be, <laughs> wondering what the dessert would be, and wondering if there's any chance it will be brownies again, even though we just had them a few days ago. And it was amazing how much energy this took. But there's a caveat here that sometimes when people hear talking about greed as an afflictive state, they sometimes misinterpret it to mean that we're never supposed to enjoy anything, that it's somehow virtuous to see the pile of brownies and just sort of turn away, not, not take one. But that's not what's being indicated here. The pleasant things in themselves are not a problem. It's the relationship to them that we want to pay attention to. So for example, if I could slowly, mindfully take a brownie, eat it, notice pleasant texture, pleasant taste, pleasant flavor, then when it's gone, it's gone, no problem. On the other hand, if I take a brownie and I gobble it up because it's so delicious and then I'm looking anxiously at the dessert platter to see if there's enough for me to take a second one and then counting how many people are in the line and whether there might be enough for a third and whether I can get the recipe from the cooks after the retreat and how I'm going to cook these for my next Dharma gathering, that's a whole different story. We've moved from simple appreciation into the energy of greed, of sense desire takes us out of the present moment and obscures our capacity to be mindful. 
So greed, compulsion is one very common unconscious reaction to dukkha. And a second very common reaction is to respond with hatred or aversion. And energetically, this refers to any movement away from the suffering. So it includes all forms of anger, all forms of hatred, and all forms of fear. So responses such as irritation or disliking, blame, resistance, judgment, self-judgment, anxiety, and so on. The list can get pretty long, so I'll just give you a few examples. And on retreat, it's true, we often find ourselves out of our comfort zones in various ways. We don't have all the props and padding and metaphorical security blankets that we do at home. So at times, at least speaking for myself, I've been surprised by the strength of the aversion that can come up in relation to quite minor things, or even in relation to nothing at all. I can still pretty vividly remember a time uh, during my first three-month retreat at IMS in Massachusetts when my mind just got completely caught by pretty intense aversion. And then there was intense aversion to the intense aversion, and then aversion to the aversion, and the aversion to the aversion and the aversion. And it ended up feeling like, almost like my mind was wrapped in barbed wire, and every thought was painful. The more I tried to free myself from it, the more lacerated I felt. So at some point I had this faint, vague idea that perhaps I should try to do some metta or kindness practice as an antidote. And I decided I would do it walking outside along the country roads using some phrases that were pretty familiar to me pretty standard, may all beings be safe, may all beings be healthy, may all beings be happy, may all beings be free. But the aversion had such a hold on my mind that I just couldn't even finish one sentence of the phrases. All I could say was, all beings, all beings, and I just kept getting stuck. But I thought, well, at least that's better than nothing. So I just stomped at first around saying all beings, all beings, all beings. But miraculously, even that was enough. Just the naming or the knowing that there are all beings, not just this being, opened up the self-centeredness of the self-aversion. And finally, after an hour or so, I got back to the meditation hall and I was in a much better frame of mind. And what a relief it was to be free of that aversion, even if it was only temporary. So this morning, Gil mentioned that uh, aversion is easier to work with than greed because, because it's so inherently unpleasant, there's a natural incentive to let go of it. Whereas sometimes with greed, it can be quite seductive, or especially if we're in fantasies, you know, they're pleasant and... Um, That kind of escapism sometimes is a little more challenging to let go of. So the third of the three afflictive energies is ignorance or delusion. And this too can be pretty challenging even to recognize because by definition, ignorance is not seeing clearly. And energetically, the way this one works is 
Whereas greed or compulsion pulls us towards what we like and aversion we pull away from what we don't like, this energy keeps us kind of stuck, not knowing. We're not seeing clearly, so sometimes we just spin around and around or we stay kind of paralyzed in, in action. And sometimes on retreat this can show up as a kind of almost willful ignorance. Something in us walks and just says, no, I don't want to see that. I don't want to go there. I'm just going to go back to bed and pull up the covers and stay there for as long as I can. And this is quite a familiar response. And on one level, we love comfort. Given the choice, probably many of us would quite happily stay in our comfort zones forever if we could. One Tibetan teacher complained about his students saying he was constantly telling them to wake up, but they were like marsupials, always trying to wriggle back down into the pouch. And I think there's something in many of us that would love to just be a marsupial and get back in the pouch and stay there. But even if that was possible, the downside is that staying with our comfort zones, over time, they start to get smaller. <coughs> and we can even see this here on retreat. You know, we all have our, I think, we all have our strategies for staying comfortable. So we very quickly establish our favorite seat in the dining room, or our favorite place to walk, or our favorite clothes to wear. And we set up a routine for ourselves of when to nap and when to shower and when to take tea and when to snack. And if our routine gets thrown off in some way, the strength of the reaction can be pretty powerful. So it's just to notice how at times ignorance or delusion can show up as this uh, pulling away from anything challenging. And if we don't recognize it for what it is, we might not make the most of this really precious opportunity to free ourselves from dukkha. So we need to train ourselves to recognize delusion and hatred and greed as soon as possible before they undermine our mindfulness too much. And one way I've um, been doing this in my own practice is to just, especially when I notice I've got lost in some way, my mindfulness has vanished, to ask three very simple questions. What's happening in the body? What's happening in the mind? And how am I relating to this experience? Or what's the attitude in the mind about it? So it's a way of taking a very quick snapshot of what's happening in the being and to highlight if there's the presence of any of these afflictive energies. So we can even do that right now. You might just, as you're sitting here, take a moment to notice what's happening in the body. Are there any physical sensations that are predominant? Just to know. And then in the mind, just taking a moment to notice the presence of thoughts or emotions or moods or mind states, any kind of mental activity. And then sort of zooming out and noticing how are you relating to this experience? What's the attitude in the mind? Is there any kind of wanting, holding on to experience if it's pleasant? 
or if it's unpleasant, is there any kind of not wanting, pushing away, resisting? Or if it's not clear, is there perhaps some sense of not knowing or spacing out? So whatever you notice, the key is to try to meet it with kind curiosity rather than judgment. Simply knowing, oh, okay, it's like this right now, rather than feeding greed or hatred or ignorance. And this capacity to meet our experience without reactivity is really a key skill of the mindfulness practice. It's that quality of welcome that Gill was emphasizing, it's such, which is such a powerful ally when it comes to working with dukkha, because it helps to release our more usual habit of resisting, which, as I'm sure you all know, generally just enhances the dukkha and makes it stick around longer. So being on the lookout for resistance is a very powerful way of um, beginning to develop a more skillful relationship to dukkha. And uh, there's a Western Vipassana and Zen teacher, Shinzen Young, who is also a mathematician, and he came up with a very simple mathematical formula that expresses this relationship between suffering and pain and resistance. He says, S equals P times R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. So pain here refers to any kind of unpleasant experience, whether it's physical or mental. We can't make ourselves immune to pain. Some amount of unpleasant experience is inevitable. But what we can control is the degree to which we resist it. So the more we resist, the more we suffer. S equals P multiplied by R. The opposite is also true. The less we resist, the less we suffer. So it's worth noticing that the formula is not S equals P plus R. It's the multiplier effect here. So the less we can resist, the less we'll experience dukkha. And so in all the meditation instructions that we've been giving so far, the invitation is to just keep knowing your experience exactly as it is, to keep letting go of any evaluation or assessment, judgment, analysis, expectation, and simply know each sight, each sound, taste, smell, physical sensations, mental experiences, just as they are, moment to moment. And with this kind of awareness, we're able to notice what's happening in the body and then separately any reactions in the mind. And this is really a key skill in Vipassana practice, that ability to be able to distinguish between experiences in the body and reactions in the mind. And again, this is a very key insight because although we can't control what happens to our bodies, Necessarily, we do have some control of our mental reactions to that pain. So some of you are probably familiar with the well-known sutta of the, of the two darts, where the Buddha talked about how an ordinary, quote, untrained worldling, which is somebody who's not a meditator, 
if they were to be shot by an arrow or a dart, they would experience a very painful bodily feeling and then they would worry and grieve, lament, beat their breasts, weep and become distraught so that they experience two kinds of feelings, a painful bodily feeling and a painful mental feeling. On the other hand, a trained meditator experiences the pain of the first dart, but because they don't add the extra darts of sorrowing and grieving and lamenting and so on, the amount of dukkha that they experience is much less. And this is a powerful analogy because although the sutta talks about two darts, I think in practice, at least for myself, I don't usually stop at just adding one extra dart. There's usually five or ten or fifty or a hundred that get piled on there on top of the original suffering. So if we can cultivate this skill of not adding the extra darts, again, we experience much less dukkha. So again, there's a famous quote by Viktor Frankl that probably many of you know, where he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So you could say what this training is about is opening up more and more space between the stimulus and the response so that we have a choice over how we react. And even though we might understand this pretty clearly on an intellectual level, there's one aspect of our relationship to dukkha that really gets in the way of opening up this space, and that's our tendency to identify with our experience and to take it personally, to see it as me, as mine, as defining who I am in some way. So circling back to the Buddha's definition of dukkha in the First Noble Truth, he named the five aggregates subject to clinging as suffering. And again, this is a huge teaching, so I'm just going to very briefly uh, touch into these five aggregates. Just keeping in mind that the, each one of them is a different facet of experience that we commonly tend to take personally or to make solid or permanent. And the first of these five is the body. So we take our body to be ourselves, me, mine, who I am. I am my body. But if we cling to the body in that way, what happens when we get sick or injured or the body suddenly ages? We often feel a sense of shock or even betrayal. How could my body let me down like this? So clinging to the body, clinging to our physical experience is a very common way that we get caught in dukkha. (coughs) Then there's the clinging to feeling tone. And this technical term, feeling tone, is really the referring to how every experience we have is automatically recognized as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral just on a very basic, uh, fundamental level, every experience has a feeling tone. And then usually what happens is we go straight into liking or disliking and creating some kind of complex reaction to it. 
But as Bhikkhu Bodhi pointed out in the quote I read earlier, if we have no mindfulness, our lives for the most part are strung out between the thirst for pleasure and the fear of pain. So if we don't have enough stability of mind to notice how we're getting caught in reactivity to feeling tone, then often this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral becomes the building block of all kinds of um, complexity or to use another technical term, proliferation. So the next of the five aggregates is this capacity, is called perception, and it's our capacity to recognize, to name, or to know what something is. For example, to perceive color, or shape, or form, or to recognize faces. And when we cling to perception, we take it to be true, permanent, and unchanging, instead of recognizing that it's learned and it's conditioned by our emotions and our moods and our mind states. So we've been asking you to bring awareness to the lens that we're viewing the world through, just to make sure that it's not distorted by greed and hatred and ignorance. And we can also start to bring awareness to any times that we tend to believe our own perceptions as being somehow fundamentally true. So as a very simple example of this, uh, early on in my practice, I, I used to believe that I was a good judge of character and that I um, understood people until I went on retreat for the first time. And this was just a weekend retreat, but by the end of the day, I had a pretty good handle on who everyone was and you know, what kind of personalities they were and where they were from and so on. And some of you are laughing because you might recognize when the silence broke and I actually spoke to people, I was so far off so often. And often the peop my perceptions were completely different from who the person, um, who the person was that I had assumed them to be. And it was pretty humbling to see just how deeply I'd been fooled by my own perceptions. And again, if we don't see these perceptions for what they are, as just perceptions, we often use them as a building block for yet another whole layer of mental construction on top of them. And this is the fourth aggregate, the aggregate of formations. And this refers to the mental constructing that's going on in our minds pretty much a lot of the time at least, and mostly unnoticed. So all of our views and our opinions and our beliefs, and our self-perceptions, the stories that we tell ourselves, the beliefs that we form and the narrative histories that we take to be so real, me, mine, who I am. And again, on one level, this is a normal part of being human. But what we're being invited to look at here is how seriously are we taking these constructs? Because if we believe them to be ultimately true, then again, when they're challenged in some way, we're going to suffer. So a few months ago, I was uh, teaching a weekend workshop with a colleague, and we were exploring the theme of self and not self. And my colleague invited us to get together in pairs and just to take turns telling our life history just in three minutes using three key events in our lives that we felt had really shaped who we were. 
and then at the end of the three minutes each, he rang a bell and he asked us to do it again, but this time to take three completely different stories. So we did it again, and then he rang the bell and we did it again, and we did it again. And at the end of the exercise, it was so obvious how much we're taking these fairly arbitrary, choosing these different events to construct a sense of, yes, this is me, this is my life story, this is what happened, and so on. And then somehow making that real and solid. And yet we could have chosen three or six or nine completely different stories. So just to see that constructing at times can be very powerful. And on retreat we might notice when we're suddenly casting ourselves as the victim or the helper or the wise elder or the idiot or the good student or the scapegoat or the entertainer or the one who doesn't belong or there's so many different roles that we create for ourselves and then step into. And again, not to beat ourselves up for that, but just to, if we can, smile and see, okay, this is what the human mind does at times. And then if we're able to let go of that story, to really get to feel how it is to navigate the world with, at least for a moment, less identification, less attachment, less clinging. And then the last of those five clinging aggregates is consciousness, the knowing capacity of the mind. And sometimes we might have a sense, well, okay, yes, I accept I'm not my body, I'm not my mental fabrications, they come and go. But there can still be a sense of somehow I am my mind, my intellect, my ability to know what's going on. And it can be quite confronting when we suddenly get an insight, perhaps uh, we see that our mind is perhaps not as reliable as we'd like to think it is, either through age or perhaps other injury or other cognitive challenges. And we might suddenly realize, wow, I'm not my intellect, I'm not my consciousness either. So just to begin to notice what aspects of our experience do we, any of us, tend to habitually take to be me, mine, who I am? And there's a little bit of a caution here. It's not, um, sometimes people hear this talk about the five clinging aggregates and think, well, if I'm not these five aggregates, then, then what am I? But the Buddha didn't, generally speaking, answer those kind of more speculative questions. He was a very practical teacher, and the point of all these teachings is to really bring awareness to how we're identifying, how we're trying to make things permanent and solid, and me and mine and who I am, because when we cling, we suffer. So in the service of this letting go of suffering, I was thinking we could perhaps, uh, I could offer a variation on Shinzen Young's formula, really highlighting the form of resistance that is this tendency identifying. So we can rewrite the formula as S equals P times I. Suffering equals pain multiplied by identification. The more we tend to refer everything back to a sense of me at the center of the universe, this is a very basic form of delusion that's also a huge source of suffering.
So whenever we do realize that we've got caught in taking something personally, one way to help the suffering release that I sometimes do in my own practice is to try to think of all the people around the world in this moment who might be experiencing a similar form of suffering. Because even though we might like to think that we're unique, we're really not. There's a, I think there's a bumper sticker that says something like, always remember you're unique, just like everyone else. And this is what this is pointing to. So if, for example, I'm getting caught in embarrassment of some kind, and I feel like, oh, it's just me, I'm such a whatever. Right then I might try to think, who else in the world right now is feeling embarrassed? And I might imagine, actually probably millions of people in that moment might be feeling some form of embarrassment or humiliation or shame. So it takes it out of being my own unique, individual, personal shortcoming and brings it into the realm of just being an ordinary and common human emotion. Just something else that can be known as impermanent, as unsatisfactory, and not belonging to me. So in this way we can discover wisdom as one of the gifts of dukkha that I spoke of earlier. The second great gift that we might find in dukkha, if we know how to look, is the gift of compassion. Because suffering is the proximate cause for compassion to arise. If there was no suffering, there'd be no, nothing for compassion to connect with. So even here during this retreat, next time that you become aware of some form of dukkha, can you recognize it as an opportunity to strengthen both of the two wings to awakening of wisdom and compassion. So with this metaphor of the two wings to awakening being wisdom and compassion, we can hopefully get an immediate sense of how both of these wings need to be equally well developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. And the experience of dukkha offers us a very powerful opportunity to develop both of these wings together if we can bring mindfulness and kindness to it. So even though often there's an unconscious hope that at some point in the retreat we're going to magically dissolve into a pink cloud of bliss and stay there for the whole rest of the retreat, even if that were possible, when it came to the end of the retreat, we'd still have to go home to our everyday lives. And if we had been able to sit in bliss, that might have been very pleasant while it lasted, but it wouldn't necessarily have helped us to develop any of the resources that we need to navigate the everyday world more skillfully. So that's why at the end of the sitting last night, I invited us just to take a few moments to reflect on the good qualities that we have already been strengthening just through this repeated showing up and facing into dukkha. And through that process, we develop not only wisdom and compassion, but the qualities such as the four Brahmavihara of kindness, compassion again, appreciative joy and equanimity, and then also qualities like generosity and renunciation or non-greed ethical integrity and energy, patience, 
determination, courage, honesty, resilience, altruism, and so on. There's an infinite list of skillful qualities that get strengthened through this process of meeting with dukkha. So I hope that we all can learn how to take advantage of these gifts in quotation marks so that our lives might be of benefit not only to we ourselves, but to everyone that we come into contact with. So thank you for your attention. We have time now for 